The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome back to The Things We All Carry. A few weeks ago, I started to record these intros without any plan, without any guidance, just uh, just to kind of go with wherever it takes me. Today, I, you find me back in Virginia. Uh, I came back from Virginia last week from Pennsylvania, and uh, I came back because on Halloween night, late Halloween night, it was, matter of fact, it was 1142, uh, my mom finally passed away. It's been a hell of a few weeks on top of a hell of a few months, on top of a hell of a few years. And I'm stuck in this position where I have to celebrate the fact that she's not suffering anymore, but I can't celebrate the fact that she's dead. So I'm trying to trying to juxtapose the two feelings of 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 the sadness that she's gone and kind of a joy that, that she's not suffering with the pain and the inability to move around and, and everything comes with a battle with cancer and, and a stay in hospice. She was diagnosed four plus years ago and went into hospice 10 months ago. You know, most people go into hospice, you think you're talking days or, or weeks and, and this woman fought it to the end. Um, until she just didn't want to do it anymore. Her body couldn't do it anymore. And uh, she told my sister that. She said that she was done being brave. And once she said that, she kind of just started to, to go to sleep. And it took a few days for her to, to finally pass on, uh, her body was strong despite the, the problems, despite, despite the cancer and despite the chemicals that are floating around in there. She just wouldn't quit. Her body wouldn't quit. But I, I, I'm pretty comfortable with the knowledge that her spirit left her body a few days before her body left this earth. Um, and when she did die on, on Halloween night, like I said, there was a, a wave of relief as well as, as, a, as a huge wave of sadness. I have I've bounced around so many ideas and thoughts of what I want to say about her. I'm just not ready. There'll be time for me to share some stories. There'll be time for some more laughter. But right now, when I think about her, I cry. And people ask me, my kids ask me, my sisters ask me, they say, how are you doing? You know, how are you doing? And my only answer is I'm doing okay until someone either asks me about her, tries to comfort me, or I just think about her. I think about her not being here and then I fall apart. And so... For the last few days, I've been trying to just push on. It's not always the ideal way to do it. 
I know that I need to meet this head on and I need to deal with some emotion and I need to process some, some feelings, but I'm not ready right now. I'm a, I kind of want a dose of normalcy. And I've, I've said that for a few, to a few people. I just want that dose of normalcy where, where people aren't looking at me like, oh man, he just lost his mom or, or how's he doing or, or whatever it is. And I understand why people do that, but it, it doesn't help get back to a, to a sense of normalcy at times. So tomorrow I get to return to work. It's been a couple of tours since I've been there. Go spend a day there before I get four days off, but you know, ease back into it and see if I remember how to do this job that we all love. Um, I suspect that it'll be awkward for me at first, but then I think it'll just fall back into the same old routine, you know, shit talking and laughter and, and running as a, running a few calls and doing some training and uh, yeah, just kind of getting back with, with people that, that if not family, they at least mimic some sort of a dysfunctional family. And uh, it'll be good to have people around me again that um, hold me accountable to just, you know, keeping my head up, keep moving forward. And, uh, We'll see where that goes. See how the day goes. I'm, 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 I have a little bit of trepidation over it, but I think it'll be a good, it'll be a good day, and it'll be good to get back into the swing of things, so to speak. As I said, I'm not really ready to get too in depth about my thoughts and my feelings about my mom. I do want to share some stories down the road, and uh, we've planned a, a a Zoom meeting with extended family to kind of tell some stories, and I might share some of those stories with with my audience as well. Uh, we're going to celebrate her life in December. And um, I think that that's a pretty good time to do it because there'll be some time between her death from last week and then that, that celebration. And she did specifically ask for a celebration, not, not, a, not a funeral. She wanted a celebration. She wanted us to laugh. She wanted us to enjoy each other's company. And so we will try to do that and, and, and say goodbye to her properly and, and the way she wanted it. So now on to uh, why we're here today. Welcome to episode 90 of The Things We All Carry. This week I sat down with Adam from Ohio. Adam's been in the fire service a little bit over 10 years. Um, he's been active in the union and some of that has kind of come back and bit him in the ass a little bit. And he'll, he'll tell his side of that story and you kind of figure out why. Um, Adam's a father and a husband. Um, he has an addiction that we haven't covered yet in, in, on this show. Um, food has been his drug of choice. And he finally got to the point where he had to say enough is enough. And he had to make some physical changes. He had to make some emotional changes. And he had to make some just mental, mental changes, some strengthen some things in, in himself. And he's done that. And he's made an, an amazing transformation, not only physically, but, but emotionally and mentally as well. He is, he is a, he's a strong person and I don't mean that in physical sense, but he's a strong person for what he's done for himself and for what he's done for his family. And we talk about some themes about it and, and it kind of correlates with, with the drug or alcohol problem. Um, I think it's a little more insidious than that because you have to live to, you have to have food to live. And if food is your drug of choice, you have to be very careful about how you use that food. He, um, he op shares openly about his surgery and why he chose to do it. 
and how he's come out the other end, um, kind of renewed with a renewed lease on life and, and how he's living life now. It was an interesting story. It was a good conversation. And I thank Adam for taking about two hours of his day and sitting down with me and being so open and sharing with you guys. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy this show. Sorry. Dose of caffeine. More of it. So. <laughs> I have no reason. I have no excuse. I haven't worked into an app tour, so I, I, I'm not tired. So I, I have no excuse. That's the problem. Yeah. It used to be in. It might be. I mean, you feel like that, you know. All right. So feeling good? Want to. Just have this conversation. Good as it goes, yeah. All right, then. Welcome back to the things we all carry. Um, today, I have Adam joining me from Ohio. Um, he has been in the fire department and around EMS since 2007. So we're going on 16 years, correct, Adam? Yes, that's correct. So what's your position today? What, what is your job today? I am a firefighter paramedic. Um, one of the larger cities in Ohio. Um, we run about 50,000 calls where I'm at. Uh, but yeah, I, I ride a, an engine and a med unit. We have separate houses, so we are a combination department. Uh, but where I'm at, we're called what we is a single house. So we have one engine, one med unit. I'm a captain, but spend a lot of time on that med unit right now, just because uh, we're we're very lower staffed compared to what we're used to for the volume that we do. Yeah, we were just talking before we came on about the respiratory shit that's going around. That's kind of kicking everybody's ass, and you guys are getting getting your asses kicked because of it. And whether it's truly kicking their ass or not, it's kicking your ass. Yeah, absolutely. It's like sometimes uh, the definition of emergency is different than the people that run the emergencies to compared to the people that believe they had to get emergency. And everybody's emergency is defined their own way. But I think we just kind of see things a little bit different to what needs to call 911 and what doesn't. It, it definitely is different. So before we get too far into it, let me ask you about music. What's the last song you heard? Yeah, I was waiting for this one. Um, on the way home, I, I, I played, I, we had a long night last night, so I kind of took it a little bit easier and I have a, a playlist with probably a thousand songs on it that I turned on and it was actually, uh, uh, was it Dean Martin fly with me? It just kind of popped on. All right. It was just like, I don't know. That's one of, one of the songs your dad used to listen to, you yeah. know what I mean? And it was kind of like before I got out of the truck and it was like, all right, I'll leave this one on. Yeah. It's a little, uh, aggressive to go home and go to bed, you know? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes you just need to slow it down and groove with it a little bit, huh? Absolutely. So, all right. Where'd you grow up? What was family life like? Uh, tell I me, up to give me a little background on Adam a little, so we know where, where you're coming from. Um, I was, I grew up in Akron, Ohio. I was the youngest of four brothers. Uh, my family, my mom and dad divorced when I was three years old and I added two stepbrothers on one side and one stepbrother on the other side. So all together, I have uh, six brothers and no girls in our family. Um, of the blood brothers, I'm the youngest of four. And I definition, definitely filled the, the baby role. Um, I was kind of separate. The other ones were all two years apart. And then I was four years after. Um, everybody was, you know, we all, everybody, good athletes. Uh, we all went to the same high school, all schools all the way through. So. By the time it was my turn to come in, um, I was the youngest. So everybody kind of knew who I was and everything. 
We all played sports. My brother, my oldest brother actually coached me through all my sports. My stepbrothers were all involved. Parents were good. You know, I never had anything, never, never wanted for anything. You know, I had a dad that really never, I can't remember him missing any event pretty much in my entire athletic career or types of any, anything that had to do with school or anything that had to do with me doing something. Uh, my mom was very involved, blessed with two step parents, um, that were very involved in my life. And I'm still close with great grandparents. Now um, I kind of went up through, played, I wrestled, played football, track, competed in powerlifting in high school, kind of did a little bit of everything. I was a mediocre student. Uh, it's one of those things that if I had any inkling that I was going to be a fireman in high school, it's like, man, I would have went to the trade school and, and learned something that I could be doing on the side, you know? Uh, didn't do real well on like my, my ACT. So I ended up going to community college for, uh, for my first years of college. And it was like, I, I poured concrete my first year out of high school for my dad's best friend. And it was kind of like, once I went down there and I did a lot better in college than I ever did in high school. And I don't know if that was just being independent or the fact that I was living on my own and kind of had to do that. Cause I moved to Columbus for for community college, just to get away for a little bit. It's about two hours south of where I live. And it was nice to kind of be on my own, but I think I grew up real fast and I did well. And it kind of came to one of those things where it was, I don't really know what I want to do, but I'm not sure that college is it. The one thing I was going to chime in for is I think it's, it's a very similar thing I've heard with a couple people now is this whole, you know, high school, I wasn't much of a, of a, of a student. I didn't have interest. You know, I, I just, I was, I got through, I made, I made it and I graduated. I wasn't, there was nothing special about it, but then you get into college or you get into the department or you get into whatever and you, you excel because it's something that you're doing for you and you're interested in. And that's what right. I found for myself as well. And the problem was I had no idea what I was interested in. You know, I kind of enjoyed the, the hard labor, like getting out of school. Like I was 18 years old and, and at the time I was making like 15, 16 bucks an hour. So that was 2005. So I was walking around with money in my pocket. I went to, to school after a, a summer with, a, a, you know, a good bit of money that I had made. And it was kind of like, I like this a lot better than sitting in a classroom, you know, and I, and I kind of enjoyed learning the trade of concrete and stuff like that. But when I got down there, it was a matter of, you know, what am I going to do? Because the advice my dad gave me was so simple, but it was probably some of the best advice I ever could have gotten. He said, I don't care what you do with your life. He just goes, I want a piece of paper that says you can do so. Mm -hmm. He's like, if you want to be a plumber, go to the union trades. You want to be a laborer, get in the laborers union. You want to be an electrician, get your electrician, sir. So it was a matter of looking back on it. I wish I would have known that a little bit more, but things all fell into place for me. So I was down in Columbus for a year and I had applied for a, a national scholarship. My dad worked for Coca-Cola at the time. And it was a national scholarship that was like five or $6,000. So again, in 2005, where I was going to school, that would have paid for a good bit of, of the college that I was going to. And so I was, I applied for it and I was nervous. I was like, I'm never going to get this. Well, I got it. So I came home from, from school for a, for a, I believe it was for my grandmother's funeral. And I was kind of out talking to my uncle and his buddy, who was a, a chief at the city of Akron. And we were kind of hanging out and they, they were like, you know, I heard you got the scholarship. What are you going to do with it? And I said, I really don't have any idea. You know, I know I'm not really cool on this whole school thing, but 
And they asked if I ever thought about becoming a fireman. And I was like, not really, you know, it really never even something that I crossed my mind. Like I kind of knew like when I would stay over my aunt's house, cause I was close with her, my uncle would come home and go back to sleep type thing. Like I never really had any idea. And we used to go visit him, but never been in a fire station in my whole entire life. So I kind of went down there and I was like, man, what am I going to do? So I got linked up with somebody that my brother had known uh, with Columbus fire, went over with those guys and kind of looked around a little bit and, and, and saw what was going on. And it was kind of one of those things where it was, well, let's give it a shot. You know? So I ended up thinking about it and I enrolled into fire school at Columbus state in 2006. Went through fire school and even then it was, it was difficult for me because I wasn't, I wasn't, there were so many of these guys that like, they were like volunteer type guys that were explorers and, and they knew that they wanted to do this for their whole entire life. And like, I didn't even know any of it. And we still used to have those low pressure hose masks with like the long hose that plugs in. And it was like, man, I, those things freaked me out. You know, they would get caught on stuff. And I remember I used to sit and watch TV and like plug my hose and practice like sucking my mask to my face. Cause I was like, man, I got to get through this. So where I got lucky was I met a guy in fire school. Um, his dad was a lot of duty death. One of those guys from small town, Ohio, insanely good athlete, uh, just come back from Iraq, very decorated veteran, all this stuff and came straight to fire school. And this guy was like, if you could picture like the true American hero type soldier, small town, big truck, like everything that you could imagine, like what you would think of like a fireman to be, that was this dude. And he wasn't even a fireman yet. And, uh, it was one of those things we got licked up and I, I, he kept me in it. He was like, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to do this again. Just really, he made you want to run through a wall. So that was how I ended up getting through fire school. And we stayed close for a long time. And it was one of those people that she just built a relationship with. Um, and, uh, I got to the point where I had a girlfriend who lived back in Akron, where I was from, she was going to a school in Kent, Ohio, which is not far, but she was from Columbus. And then I had some connections in Akron. A brother's friend of mine was from, was a captain at the time at a small department where I grew up. And I was like, Hey man, I got my, my fire and my EMT, you know, what's next. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, if you, if you come back to Akron, I can pay for you to go to paramedic school. And I had had no student loans at that time, nothing like that. My girlfriend was back home and I was like, well, maybe this is the best option for me. So I went back and got out of a small department in 2007. Um, they paid for me to go to paramedic school. And it was one of those things where I had no idea how good I had it because there were so many guys there that were young and eager. And we all lived close to each other. Cause at the time you had to have residency for the city of Akron. And that's where everybody wanted to work at the time. So it was one of those things where you got 20% on your bonus points just to, to be living in the city at the time. And so we would, we all hung out together to help me get through paramedic school. And it's just like, I got into that grind that we used to have, I guess, before there was so many people for the job, um, where I was working numerous small departments. I was working private ambulance. I was working, uh, at. I worked at an ER and I kind of just bounced around until I got hired at my first full-time job, which was a fire only department. And I believe that was 2011. And it was one of those things where they were trying to get EMS. They were a very old school department, hardcore, saw a lot of fire. They were out by like Youngstown, Ohio, just the, 
old factory town manufacturing town that kind of went dead and it was like uh it was so much history um and i got hired out there but it was on a safer grant yeah. so their goal was to get ems the city wanted nothing to do with ems um and then our union president at the time was killed in a motorcycle accident and kind of everything died with him you know he wanted stability he wanted guys he wanted ems he wanted people to come in and build the department back to what it once was but they knew financially without EMS, that wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. So they hired a bunch of paramedics. Um, and then after a year and a half or so, two years, maybe I got laid off. So it was kind of my first big shot in the, the fire service where. But you didn't get laid off for, for personnel reasons. You, it was the grant, correct? The grant was up and yeah. the city was like, well, we're not doing this. So we're not going to um, keep you guys. Yeah. I just wanted to specify that, that there, there's a reason why you, why you lost a gig. Right. Yeah. It was one of those things. I didn't, I didn't get fired or anything like that. It was a matter of like, they just, the grant was up and they weren't going to renew the grant and they weren't going to reapply for the grant. So, um, they didn't have the money to staff right. the fire department. So once that was up, I was off for like a year and I was working at a couple part-time departments. Um, and it was tough too, because that was the time when they did like the Obamacare stuff where you could only work a certain amount of hours being part-time. So it was just, I got very lucky that that place kind of allowed me, they knew I had a kid, mm -hmm. they knew I was laid off and they kind of took care of me. So I worked through that. Um, I got back to Warren after like a year, um, being laid off and I was there for like probably six, eight months before I got hired at the department I'm at now. Um, I had taken the test. It took almost two years to the exact date. Um, it was the day the list expired was when I got my job offer. So that was one of those things I'd been waiting and waiting and waiting. It was the only place I truly wanted to work. All my friends had already been working there. Um, the only place I truly wanted to be. So April 20th, 2015 was when I got, uh, my start date and I was able to get started with where I, uh, believe my career was finally going to start. And, and so, tell me a little bit about this department. Cause I know it was, it, it's, I think you, well, you already referred to it as your dream department, but, but why is it a dream department and, and, and how did that affect you? Um, the department is the biggest thing was it was the biggest department in the area. Everybody knew that they fought the most fire. Um, it's one of the bigger cities around. It's where everybody, where we were from, you know, we were from the suburbs, but that was the closest city to where we were at. It was also the biggest chance you had, because if you lived in the city, you got 20%. Um, and then you had enough, they had a 40% bonus point time at the time and you could get hired with those bonus points. So I think I had 30, 37 out of 40%. So I knew not being a good test taker, that was my best shot because I had so many bonus points. And that was something where I knew that I wanted to put my eggs in the barrel. And at the time we were one of the higher paid, uh, we were definitely the busiest. Um, you just were going to have more opportunity if you wanted to be a city firefighter and fight fire and go on the, the hardcore EMS stuff, this is where you were going to do it. Um, also it was one of the places that you could, you didn't have to be a paramedic your whole career. You could serve. I think at that time it was five years. You could be a paramedic for five years and then you could bid out of the paramedic program. Gotcha. And you didn't have, you didn't have to be a paramedic anymore. Um, now we're up to, we went to 10 and we're back to eight now. Eight but years. All is, yeah, but it's all based on how many medics we have. Okay. Um, 
So it's a matter of if we have enough over the contractual allotted amount, they can let people out of the program. Uh, we're kind of at a halt with that right now because we're, our staffing is low and the, the, the amount of paramedics that we're getting on our testing process has gotten significantly lower. Gotcha. Um, so that's where we ended up. That's where I ended up and that's where I, um, began everything. It was, it was where I wanted to be in pretty much all, all your buddies that were in the service with you guys, you grew up with guys, you knew from here and there, you know, everybody was working there that I was friends with. So it was like, who wouldn't want to go to work with all their friends, you know, and, and do all the cool shit that you do as a fireman. You know, that was, it was the place to be right there. I think one of the things you said is it allowed you to, to break free of the shadows. Yeah. And that was one of those things where when you're the youngest of four brothers, you grew up in a smaller town. Um, you know, I, I never felt like I was constrained to not being able to be myself, but you were always the younger brother, you know, yeah. oh, you're so-and-so's brother, you're so-and-so. And we all played the same sports. So I was like the fourth one coming up <laughs> and I was a good athlete. They were all great athletes. I was a good athlete too, you know, so, but you were still always going to be the fourth one. You know, and, and my brothers moved on to do different types of careers that I could never do. I have a brother that's a, a principal and I have two brothers that I don't, I don't really know what they do. Uh, they do like they their MBAs and they do some sort of consulting type thing. You know, I, I don't know. You know, I never know what they do. Um, so it was cool for me to just be like emerge as this completely different type of person as a public servant. And then I was, I was the, the nerdy young fireman guy when I first got it, man, I was like, I wanted to wear the t-shirts. I wanted to have my, my, we had to wear pagers back then and for the small department or, you know what I mean? Like, so it was like my chance to have my own identity and sink myself into something. And, and it turned out like I was good at it. You know, I, I, I worked really hard to become a paramedic. That was probably the hardest thing I've ever done educationally in my life. And it was like, once I got that and started doing trainings and stuff, it was like, man, I'm, I'm I'm kind of good at this. So it was really cool to kind of create excuse me, my own identity in that field and find something to sink my teeth into at 20, you know, 20 something years old to really invest myself. Yeah. And I think you, 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 you fell in, I don't want to call it a, yeah, maybe we call it a trap. I don't know. I think, I think a lot of us do at the time when you first get in this job and you, you're like, yeah, I'm a fireman. You know, and, and you identify as that, not as you, you, you put that, you, that title is everything for you. It was, and, and, and I don't want to call it a complex, but it's kind of a complex. You know what I mean? Like we were friends with cops where you pretty much only hang out with other firemen, you know what I mean? And you're young. And at that point it was like, I, I was never really a, a huge like drinker, but you're still going out to bars and stuff. Cause a lot of us still lived in Akron. So we would go out to these little neighborhood spots and, you know, you'd see guys there on a Tuesday night hanging out because nobody has to work the next day. Right. It was just a, a complex of like a, frater a fraternal complex mm -hmm. is the best way to describe it. You know what I mean? You belong to something and you have pride in something. You create this identity through it. Um, sometimes a little bit too much, but you don't know that until you look back on it. Right. You know, like it's one of those things where to you, it's just what you do now. You worked hard to create something and now you're that and you're just taking pride in it. You know, but we don't realize that you're just creating yourself into something that, um, it's your job, you know, and sometimes we forget that it is our job and we never get to really walk away from it. But at some points we have to 
separate ourselves as we get older and mature through it from the identity of it to it being our profession. Yeah, that's well put. You, you do have to separate. Yeah, you have to be, you have to be a, a human, not just a firefighter. Right. So tell me about those first couple of years in, in, in the department. How, how'd they go by? Um, I got, when I first got it in, I got into a, a station that had a lot of, a lot of different levels. You know, I came in as somebody that had three years experience on another full-time department, but I did everything I could to not show that. Right. Cause we had some senior guys there that were, that had been through it, you know, and they were, they were been around and they were very well known and their reputation preceded them. And it was one of those things where your immediate actions could make or break you, um, very quickly. So a quick story, how I kind of helped solidify myself. Probably it was my first day on the job. We were out trading all morning. We come back. It's around lunchtime. We get called for a, a house fire. We open up the doors and it was like, you could see smoke just billowing down the road. So we respond to this fire and the Lieutenant yells back for me to grab a, a hose line. Well, I reverted back to what I knew from my other department. I, I grabbed a two and a half inch hose and I was supposed to grab, um, a inch and three quarter. Right. So we get, we get to the house, the senior man comes up, he goes, what the hell do you have a two and a half for? I was like, I don't know. And, and I kind of, we just, he's like, oh, well, so we start spraying it on it and we get back to the station and they kind of call me in the office and they go, Hey man, you know, what was the deal? We told you to pull this hose and they use the, they use the term in the industrial bed. And okay. I guess I just wasn't thinking. And he's like, we told you to pull the industrial bed and you pulled the two and a half. What the hell? You know, do you not know? And I go, honestly, first day on the job, I got excited. I grabbed the first hose I could see and I went to the door. I said, I have no excuse and I'm not going to make one. I said, that was my bad. I said, I pulled the wrong hose line. I said, I apologize. And, and it was kind of like one of those things where they were like, oh, okay. You know, they didn't really, it was, it was like, cause I didn't, I knew about to make an excuse. It's you know, funny when, when you take, it. when you take ownership for a mistake like that, it's funny how that catches people off guard. Cause they're so used to people trying to make excuses. Absolutely. And it was one of those things where it was like, I don't know if they, it just helped me, I guess is what it was, you yeah. know, and it was, it, it helped me to them to see that I wasn't going to be like, well, back where I worked before type thing. And it was like, no, man, I just, I grabbed what I, I saw and we put the fire out and nobody got hurt. And right. Now I know what I did wrong. And, you know, sorry, fellas, you know, it's not my first mistake. Won't be my last mistake. So, <laughs> you know, and, and it just, I think that helped me. So I was, I was loving life, man. Uh, we work a, a 40 hour work week here. So we work, uh, one day on two days off. And then we have a Kelly day every third week. So. I didn't even want to be off for that. You know, my day off was Tuesday and I was stopping at the station for coffee, you know, hanging out. And it was like, I just, I always wanted to be there. Right. And so, um, I went through that. So I went through my probationary period there, which is 270 days. And then I got transferred to, uh, the busiest station in the city. Uh, they had somebody that was leaving that station. They thought I was a good fit. I was at going through, I went through hazmat school. So it's the hazmat technician station. Um, this, all three trucks there, the ladder, the engine, and the med unit were the busiest in the city at a time. So for me, it was like, I couldn't be more excited. Um, and that place has a little bit of a stigma on the department. Um, when you go there, you know, it's a, it's a very tighter knit group of people. And I had some friends there and, and they kind of welcomed me in and, and I got involved. Um, I was, I started to, after about a year and a half, started to get involved in the union. I got on the executive board. Um, and that was something that I, if there's one thing I could change in my career, 
that would probably be one of them. I probably wouldn't have gotten so involved to be so vocal so early. Right. Um, because everybody knows that guy, you know, and I felt like I, my complex got the best of me for a little bit. And I had some, there were some things that they were trying to break into the department as very progressive. And I thought that that would be my chance to jump on to something and try to make my name union wise. And looking back, it was probably one of the worst decisions that I could have made because, you know, when you're fighting the battle for the guys, the guys are there to help you. Um, but it doesn't always look good at the people that control how your life goes on the department. Um, and at that time, um, it just wasn't the time for me. I wasn't solidified enough in my tenure at the department to be speaking my mind the way that I was speaking my mind. And I recognize that now and that comes from maturity and learning your lessons uh, for what you did later on in your career. Well, you're still a young guy at this point, you know, you're still in your twenties, right. correct? Right. Yeah. I was probably, probably 25 years old. Yeah. So, I um, mean, you're, just a, you're young and full of hubris and, and you're, you just, you caught up in these two years of being kind of being a badass. And it was sort of the, the, the crowd gasses you up a little bit, yeah. you know, like, oh, you know what you're talking about. You should get involved with this. You should get involved with that. And it's like, but then you realize that you're going to take the repercussions, not the people that are gassing you up. Oh yeah. Fight the fight, you yeah. know, and anybody that's involved in the, in you know, union stuff, it's, it, it, it has a fine line, you know, like there's a fine line with what is acceptable and progressive as opposed to where you're just a pain in the administration's ass and that is what I would be taking. Mm -hmm. You know, I recognize that now and, and um, I call it self-inflicted wounds because, um, um, I got, you know, I can't say that it directly relates, but it's coincidental that soon after I was transferred to a less desirable station, someplace I didn't want to be. And I was like right around three years. And I kind of just went on the tour of less than desirable positions on places on the department to where I didn't feel were adequate for what I believed that I was. So, um, in those positions, I had to kind of eat crow a little bit and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be there. Um, I thought that I was better than the positions at the end of the day, I was still a firefighter and paramedic going on runs. I was doing the job I signed up for and I was doing it at the department. That I, I, you know, I called my dream department, but for some reason that wasn't good enough for me. And I felt like it devalued my worth as a firefighter and paramedic to be at some of these stations where I believe that I was better than, and that was kind of what led to, um, a couple of years of just struggle and demise for myself. So when you say struggle and demise, it, it, what's that look like? I mean, what it, is it, is that internal? Is it external? Are you, are you? Are you taking it out on people? Just taking it out on yourself? What, what are you doing? I became one of the cancerous people. Okay. You know, I became the guy that everything was always wrong and everything was always the administration's fault or they were out to get me or nothing was ever adequate for me while I was at work. You know, I didn't want to be there and I was, you started to see people kind of dwindle away from you because your attitude was so toxic, but you believe that you were fighting this fight, you know, for the guys and for yourselves and that they're doing you wrong and they're doing guys wrong and stuff like that. And, um, 
And I just kind of started to have that attitude that I was better than the positions that I was in. And I was showing it by um, pretending that every fight was my fight. You know, guys would come to me because I would know the contract and I would talk to people and I would help them with stuff and I would take it on as my battle when a lot of times they weren't my battle. And I never recognized that, but I devalued my worth on the department as the position I was in. So I was looking to create my own identity again through fighting union battles that Mm -hmm. were doing nothing more than digging me into a hole that I didn't want to be in. Right. All under the guise of, of, of saying I'm doing, I'm doing right for somebody. Right. Exactly. And it was a matter of like, I believe that everything that I was doing was just when in reality, looking back on it, it was just a matter of, I was trying to find worth for myself through this type of collective bargaining and and things like that. And and I'm not downgrading the union, I'm downgrading the position that I took Mm -hmm. because it's real easy to sink yourself into that and believe that you're fighting the good fight, but you're actually fighting unwinnable battles that really aren't your battle. Right. You know, as opposed to just showing up and doing your job to the best of your abilities. Had I done that and I just would have shut up for a little bit, things probably would have gone a lot better for me. Right. Um, but that was where, again, I, I just kind of, uh, I, I wasn't, when I say let myself go, I, I just, I got out of shape. I was eating trash. I was depressed all the time. I had no value in myself. And I had that identity that was created through being a firefighter. And I felt like it was stripped of me. So I sought happiness through other means. Right. And some people we know, they, they go through alcoholism, they go through drugs, they go through whatever it may be for their vice. And my vice just happened to be food. Um, and probably from the time that I got hired to the time where I actually decided that I needed to make a change was I probably put on 150 pounds. Yeah. You know, and how, t- how big are you walking around waiting at that point before you start to put the weight on? Um, I don't, so to preface this, I've always been a bigger dude. My freshman year of high school, I was six foot two ninety five. Yeah. Like I was a lineman. I have a large build. I competed in powerlifting. So I've always been a bigger guy. I have a very large frame. Um, I was probably around 300 pounds and I got hired, still could move, still could do any agility that anybody wanted to do. I was just a big dude. Right. I was that offensive defensive lineman type guy. Um, and over the years I got up to now, mind you, my biggest weight that I was ever at that, you know, it's something I saw on Joe Rogan is that you were, you're always 10 pounds heavier because that was just the day that you felt comfortable getting on the stage. (laughs) You know, so my, my highest recorded weight was 443 pounds. And that's the number that I used prior to uh, the procedure that I had as my number where I focused on my loss film. Yeah. That's a, that's a big number. And nobody wants to be with that guy. You know right. what I mean? I wouldn't want to go you know, And it's like, looking back on it, it was just like, man, what, what, what did I let myself go to? Right. Looking at pictures now, like, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm very lucky that I never had any health scares. I'm very lucky that I made it through COVID. You know what I mean? Right. Like in reality, like just every symptom or every problem or I don't know what the word is. Just say you had every comorbidity that, that you comorbidity. Yes. Yeah. Uh, dude, I had every single one of them. You know what I mean? And it's like, I, 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 I had every comorbidity for me to get COVID and suffer from it. Right. 
and I never got it. And I don't know if that's in the back of my head is why I made the decision to do what I did. Um, but I never had high blood pressure. I never had high sugar. I mean, I was, I'm sure I was on my way there, but I was also very young. Yeah. You know, but I got to that point where I just, I recognized that, man, I, I, I have to, I was going to the doctor, you know, and every doctor wants to put you on a weight loss medication. Everybody wants to do this. Everybody, you know, wants to give you all these things to, to help you. But like in reality, until you identify what your problem is in any sort of addiction type disease or whatever you would like to call it, nothing is going to work until you're ready to do the work and dig deep to why you are doing the self-destructive behavior that you're doing. Yeah. And that was where I had to submit to myself. And, and decide that I got to put my ego aside and I got to figure this out because at this point now I have a wife and three kids. I was going to say, and you kind know? of the irony here is that you've, you've created this issue basically for yourself and, 100%. and they reacted. And so they, they did almost what's a natural thing in a fire department. Cause we all know people have screwed up on the job or, or, or done, you know, if you're a mouthpiece, you put a target on yourself. Yes. And that was a hundred percent. So, what so I you, you got, you got Delta cards that you kind of shuffled and right. once you got your hand, you didn't like it. And, and I get that. I completely understand that. And then you, you, you lose what you thought was your, your spot. And you, you like you said, you self, you, you, you create self-inflicted wounds. You, you, you lost that comfort and the calm you try, you need, you need chaos to, so you can quote unquote help. And then. Correct. And then and the depression sets in. Hey guys, quick break right here just to check in and thank each of you for listening to the show. Your support has been paramount and I appreciate all of you. I have one request though. I need you to share the show with everyone you know. Help me get the word out and spread these stories as far and as wide as we can. While you're at it, please leave a review of the show wherever you happen to listen. Feel free to reach out to me at any time to share your story, to talk, or to pass on suggestions. Let's get on with the rest of the show. And that's what it was, you know, the people that I, that, you know, where my friends were, were gone, you know, and it's like, I, it feels good now being in the position that I'm in to look back in all of that and say, yes, this was 95% my fault. I did a lot of this, you know? Um, and I only say 95 because it's like a matter of when you and I talked originally, it's like someone getting fat is taboo to speak on if your buddy's an alcoholic or your buddy's got a drug problem it's like we got to get this guy help you know he's drinking he's doing drugs he's doing all these vices but when someone just gets fat they're like fuck that guy he doesn't care anymore you know what i mean and they write him off and it's like i won't ever say that it, and i guess i won't say that i will never say it but like sugar and food are just the socially acceptable way to kill yourself, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, it's a socially acceptable way to continue your demise without anybody judging you because they just assume that you're getting fat. Like people do, if you're an alcoholic or you're a drug addict, you know, you have a disease, we have to get you help. But when you look around and you look at some of the people that are continuously eating and, and mending their wounds with food, which is very common on the fire department. You, you just assume that they're a piece of shit and you, and you really, they don't need that hand as opposed to why are they doing the things that they're doing? What's causing that behavior? Well, and you, you add into that, that yeah, you can survive without alcohol and drugs. It doesn't, you're not necessary to, to, for life with those two things, 
food you, you can't, you have to eat. Right. And when your eating's out of control you, and you, it, it, that it's right there, what I just said, it's out of control. If you can't stop it, but you have to right. have it to survive, then what do you do? And, every, and the hard part was, is that everybody, you know what to do. You know, everybody knows what you're supposed to eat, what you're not supposed to eat. Um, and we all know firehouses are trash dumpsters for junk. Well, $5 for meals stuff. aren't, don't, aren't always yeah. healthy. But even on the counters and stuff, people are always yeah. dropping stuff off or guys, wives are bringing stuff in. I mean, it's not even just a lot of times the, what you're cooking at the station is the best thing you're going to eat for the day. Yeah. You know, and it's just like, there's trash food at the hospitals that it's just like, you're busy all day and you can't And then a lot of times you're eating in such a hurry that it's like, you're just shoving in. You don't even know if you're hungry or when you're full because yeah. you're just trying to shovel it in before the, the next run comes. So some of that does have to do with the dynamics of the job. Well, when you're up all night and you come back from a run or whatever, you, you can't sleep. You're like, oh, I'm going to stop at the fridge and see what's still there. Yep. You know, and it's just, some of it is just shitty habits that we develop from lack of sleep and needing that, that serotonin from whatever it may be from that last run. So some of that stuff, and is, I do think that the job makes a difference in that because it's a matter of you're just mending wounds. Right. Temporarily. Right. And, and, and for me, that's how it just happened to be that I mended my wounds on and off the job with the same drug. Right. And that was, I say sugar because it's like trash food, you know, sugar and then junk and you know, you can't drink on the job you can't smoke on the job, but it's a matter of that was something that I could do on and off the job that mended the wounds that I was needed healed from. I think it's also a good time to talk about how the department, your department was growing at the time. Cause you're, you're seeing more and more and you're, you're, you're in your, you're running more and more. Correct. Right. We got very busy for a while there. Like 2016, 17 was where our city got hit so hard with fentanyl. And I'm sure everyone else's did. I just, I, I, I'm not familiar with a lot of places, but our place in particularly, because we are home to, um, one of the biggest, we're home to Alcoholics Anonymous. So there's a lot of resources in the city that I work for, for people to come in and get drug and alcohol rehab. So that brings people in from literally all over the country that are fighting addiction. And a lot of those people come here and they would get into these places and then they would stay out and then they just turned into homeless or less than, you know, desirable humans that were continuously doing the fentanyl when it came out. And it's a matter, I mean, I couldn't even tell you how many different overdoses that we went on. So it's like, you're seeing this, the self-destruction from people over and over and over. And that's just like, you were adding these on top of the already busy runs that we were already doing, but it just like, it would never stop. And that was something that I told you. It's like, once I got into this stuff, it was like, it was weird for me because watching these people overdose, I, I felt like a, a weird similarity to them. Mm -hmm. You know, it was something that like, I felt internally that like, I had this problem that I knew was a problem and I knew that I needed to stop, but I physically could not stop doing the things that I was doing. And that was eating trash. Right. And it's like, I'll, I remember a kid overdose and I was sitting behind him in the ambulance and he texted his mom. He was like, mom, I did it again. Yeah. And she was like, okay, what hospital are you going to? And it was like, that related to me back in my head about how every Monday I was starting a new diet and every Monday day one, this is going to be day one for me. This is the time I'm going to do it. And then it was like, 
after my next shift or by Wednesday, it was like, I'd fallen off the wagon again. And it was like, I, I know I can't compare what I was doing to a fentanyl addiction, but at some point addiction is addiction. And I, I don't think what I had was a disease type addiction. I just think that I had not found a way to get out of the, the self-destructive cycle that I was in, but it felt really weird for me to relate to that with something that was such a, a crisis that I watched people die from. And it was like, man, they're just going to die a whole lot faster than I am if I don't get out of this type of situation because I'm going to eat myself into diabetes or high blood pressure or a heart attack. I mean, that's a lot of weight to be carrying around. And, right. And, and, and your ticker can only handle so much. I mean, I'm, I'm one good burner away from not walking out of here, you know, and leaving three kids at home with 30 something years old, because I mean, 443 pounds on a, on a good house fire, man, you're going to be, you're going to be struggling. Yeah. You know? And not only that, if something did happen in a fire and, 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 you know, Rit has to get you out, it's a, that's right. a struggle. And I, and I, I used to fear for that, you know, going to like, when we would do Rit training and stuff, it's like, man, don't pick me, don't pick me, don't, don't pick me to be the guy, you know, and it was just like one of those things right. that was like so much anxiety around it, but it was like always like this weird out of body experience where you were looking at yourself continuously falling back into bad habits and, and doing all the things you didn't want to do. And, but you, there was, you couldn't find the way to muster up to change it. And I guess that's why I compare what I was doing to like some sort of an addiction, because I'm sure that alcoholics and, and, and drug addicts and stuff like that, that get into these situations, they want to get out of it. They, I mean, I've seen it all runs a million times. They want to stop. They want to do everything they can, but they just haven't found that way to separate themselves from it, to get over the hump, to start it, to get themselves living right again. You know, one of the things in your notes, you said, uh, there's a bulletproof, uh, a bullet point, excuse me. There's a bullet point in there. that says I had very little, very few friends left. The department wrote me off as someone who was basically a fat slob. I felt like no one cared to have my back when I needed help, but they would like they would with an alcoholic or a drug addict. They, they saw it as a, they saw that as a disease, but they saw you as someone who just gave up. My, I guess my question there is every department has, has guys have a few guys that kind of have given up as we see it as given up. How do you get through to somebody like in, in your situation? What would you have heard? What would you have listened to from, from your buddy next to you saying, Hey, Adam, we got to talk, man. Would that have even been effective or, or what would have been effective at that point? To be honest with you, man, I, I thought about that and I thought hard about it because there's people out there that like have come to me since I've made this change. And I wonder, you know, personally right now, I think that I would have been like, I, yeah, I know. Like, I think I would have been stubborn about it because I would have been so embarrassed that I had gotten to the position that I got myself to. Yeah. That like. You know, I either think that's what would have happened and I would have gotten pissed or if somebody would have came to me that like was a true friend, I think I might've just broke down and been like, I know, dude, like, I like, I don't know which way that would have gone, you know? And I've thought about that. Like, would I have just gotten pissed and been like, man, yeah, I know I'm that I get it. You know, like I got to get my life together or would I just been like lost it, you know, and just been like, I, I don't, I, I know, I don't know what to do. Like I, I, I've tried everything and, and that's how I felt. I mean, and my wife knew I felt that way. My wife knew that the biggest struggle that I've had, like my entire life was, was my weight. 
And it's been my whole entire life. I've always been a bigger guy, but like I got to the point where it was consuming every aspect of me to where I was never happy. I was miserable to be around. Um, and I brought it with me home. I brought that, that sense of anger home. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful that I have the wife that I had because I would be single right now if I didn't, you know, much less of a woman would, would have not have put up with the guy that I was for five years. And that's for hundred percent sure, because I've seen it. So they, they would not have put up with that. I know what I, I know from talking to you, what comes next and you call it your rock bottom. And would you say, what year was that? Did you, did you would say that that started for you, that rock bottom began? Uh, let's see. So it's 23. I'd say probably right around COVID. So okay. Like 20, 20, probably 21. Um, I had just gotten so burnt out with what I was doing at work. And I ended up taking a position on a non-emergency unit um, that worked seven to five. And you were kind of a community outreach type person. What it was, was you would go on only non-emergency calls and like you would go out there and you would kind of help grandma get up. But you're like, when grandma's fallen five times in a month, it's like, yeah. did grandma just need a handrail? You know, right. is there something that we could do here? And that was something that like, I wasn't sleeping and I was like, I need to, I need to get out of here for a little bit. Cause it was a seven to five or seven to five Monday through Thursday gig. So it was sweet, sweet hours. And I was like, okay, so I can exercise before I can pack my lunch every day. I won't be in mess. Um, I can get sleep every night. This is what I need to do to get myself going. And I believe still in my heart that I was going to be able to do it myself. And I kept trying, man. And I kept trying and trying and trying. And it's like, I had every reason to succeed and I just couldn't succeed. You know, like I was getting up and I would like walk before work and then I would lift weights and stuff. And. I still, I couldn't fight, you know, you can't out train a bad diet and, and no matter how hard you do, especially when you're starting from the bottom of the well, like you can't dig yourself out of that hole if you're not living right completely. And finally, I just got to the point where it was like, enough was enough. My doctor has suggested bariatric sleep surgery probably a year before. And, you know, I went to my wife, my wife's a nurse, so she's in the medical field and, you know. I talked to her about it and she's like, you know, it's, it's just something that's a huge decision because it's going to change your life for pretty much ever. Um, and she's like, you have to understand that it's not the answer, you know, like you have to do the work. There's a lot of people that have this surgery and they fail and they fail miserably. So if you're going to do this, she's like, I support you hundred percent, but you have to know that this is like, a, this isn't the only answer. And it was one of those things I, I started going to therapy and I started talking to a therapist about it. And it was like, I, I got that guidance and I started to understand that I was the only one that could fix my problem. And maybe this was the tool that I needed to just get myself over the heart. Cause that's what my doctor always said. He was like, man, if we can get you to do this and you can just get 30, 40 pounds down, he's like, you're never going to look back. He's like, you'll never look back. He's like, you just need to get over that hump and get yourself back right and you're going to transform. And so I finally decided to do it. And it's like a, excuse me, a six month process to be cleared through your insurance. I had to do like all kinds of doctor's appointments. I had to be seen by like cardiologists and all that stuff, just to make sure that I was actually fit for it. And I had to continuously lose a little bit of weight here and there. Mm -hmm. So that kind of put me on track for it. 
Um, and I, I would go, I would go in and out with it, man. I would be like, oh, I could do this myself. I can do this myself. And then I would fall off a little bit. And then it was October 3rd, 2022. So I just had my one year anniversary from it where I decided, you know, that's when I had my surgery. Um, I had gastric sleeve surgery and it was kind of one of those things where I was, my reserve on it was, I was so scared what everybody at the fire department was going to think. You know, I was, I was so worried if my, my ego was so worried about what everybody was going to think about me for doing that. But then it was kind of one of those things where, you know, my right hand man that I talked to about everything made me realize the same people that are going to talk shit about you for getting your life together and getting healthy and losing weight are the same people that are calling you a fat ass. So he's like, it don't really matter what anybody thinks besides what you think and what you're doing for yourself. And that was kind of where. I decided that it was like, this isn't about anymore. This is a guy, or this isn't about them anymore. This is about me. And, you know, everybody wanted to tell me, you got to do this for your family. You got to do this for your family. And one of the best decisions I made in my head was, no, I have to do this for Adam because putting everybody in this world before me for all this time is how I got in this position. So it's time to start living for me a little bit so that I can be the best version of myself for everyone else in my life, in myself. And that was kind of where I, I made the change. I want to, I want to touch on some things that, that led you, led up to the, the gastric sleeve. Cause I, I, I know that was the, the ultimate result in everything you went through, but yeah. I, I want, I kind of want to call attention to some of the things you went through leading up to it and, and not to, not to glorify the, the stuff you went through, but I want other people to maybe be able to look at or hear your story and go, wait a second. I, I recognize that. And, Absolutely. and I think some of it is the fact that the, cause you, you talk about, um, having a harder time dealing with the calls, you know, that, that not being able to leave that hypervigilance. I did. I couldn't, I would bring it home. Um, there was a lot of different times where it was like, you just feel like you could never shut it off. Um, and, and I don't think that for the most part, I don't think that the things that I saw or the things that we did were any different than what anybody sees in this job. It's just everybody absorbs things differently and they internalize it differently. Um, and I think my situation was a little bit different because I was already down on myself, you know? So when you're starting again at the bottom of the well, right. And you're already waking up at like a seven every day, just pissed at yourself because you just, you can't stand to look in the mirror everything is going to hit you that much harder. And I think that that's something that guys don't realize on this or on all departments is that like, it's not always just the calls, you know, sometimes those are just the, the icing on the cake. When you already have everything else in your life, isn't in order, right? The calls are just going to be gasoline on that fire to accentuate all the things that are, are you think aren't going right. Now, at this point I had three kids. Life was not slow. Um, and sometimes in reality, my only break in life was going to work, you know? And it's like, yeah. you, you, I would go to work and it's like, you should get that 10 minutes a piece in between calls that you weren't getting at home. And, but it was just a matter of that's as unhealthy as it gets. Yeah. If going on 10, 15 med runs and fires and stuff a day is your solace in life. 
you got to figure something out. That's that chaos, you man. Know, that's, that's, it is, man. That's it that is. chaos. And it is. And it's like, and I became, I'm still, I'm learning to get better at it, but I'm still not, I, I'm not a comfortable in the calm type of person. You know, like I, I need that energy in my life and I need to, I've learned to focus it better. But for a long time there, man, like it was, I was waking up and like at home to go on runs. Like I remember when I used to wake my wife up for a run all the time, or I'd ask her where my pants were. And she's like, what the hell are you talking about? Well, we got to, I said, we got to run, you know? And it was just like, I, I, I was never below like a level five when it came to just being able to shut it off. And it was like that for a very long time. You said, uh, one of the things we talked about is an incident that happened in your mom's driveway and, and, and whether you want to talk about it or not, it, it does. I'm not worried about that, but I think that you said that was the first time you were unable to leave something at work. Yeah. And it was, um, I could, the caller, it was a few years back and, and it was weird because it was, uh, the city was super busy one day and we were totally out of district and we had a call for a child that was run over by a car. And it was one of those things where. We were probably three districts away and it was like, well, we're close. Let's jump this. So we take a minute over there. We get there. The little girls was playing in the driveway and I believe was backing down the driveway and, and, and ran her over. Um, we got her in the back of the ambulance and I mean, and she, we did everything that we could and she just didn't make it. And it was weird because I knew exactly where the street was because it was one of those places. Like when you go with your parents back to where they grew up, they're like, hey, you know, that's the street I grew up on type thing. And I, I still am kind of lived in the area. So we go over there and, and it was just one of those things that hit me. Um, I text my mom later on. I said, Hey, what was your address on, on Lily street? And she told me, and for some reason it was so weird to me that it was in her childhood home. And I had had a little, my, my little girl, my little girl was the same age at that time. Mm. And it was one of those things, man, where I just, I don't know why. Like, why was I three districts away? Why was I in my mom's childhood driveway to get this dead kid? Like, it was the first time that I, you know, that wasn't my first dead kid or serious call. You know, I'd been doing it for a long time by then, but like, I don't know why that one resonated with me. Um, and then the other, and I don't know if I put this in the notes, but later on that day, there was a, we had, there was a child that got into a bag of fentanyl and overdosed. And when I heard the call go out, it was on a street that maybe has like five, six houses on it. And my dad grew up there. So it was actually next door to my dad's childhood home. And it was like, why? Like, why that day? Yeah. Uh, in, in, a, in a, you know, 60 square mile city. Like, what, what? But then the hard part was, is that we never stopped that day, man. And, and I don't know if it was on your podcast where they talked about almost like the brain trauma of some of these runs. And it was like, when you go through with like a dead kid and it's just like, then you got to keep moving on. We went to another back to back to back calls of people um, that were continuous issues and stuff. And I could just feel myself getting more and more pissed every single run, every run. We hadn't eaten, we hadn't done anything. And those runs just like hit me terribly that day. And the next day was the first time I remember we went out for my brother's birthday and it was the first time that I was like ever in a public place where I was like, I told my wife, I was like, I, I can't be here. Like, we got to get, like, I just, I, I, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be around people. I don't want to do this. And I don't know what it was, but we literally got up and left in the middle of waiting for dinner to, to go home. 
And it was just like, that's the first time that's ever really happened at that point. Um, I think I recognize it more now when I'm just not feeling it. I won't go out and do stuff, but it happens few and far between now. But I don't know what it was about that day and what it was about those runs or if it was the coincidence of being like in my mom's, like what, it it was just a weird scenario for me. And that was where I first remember that, that, man, this is, this is rough, you know? And at that time, before you, before you decided to take the journey down with the, with the bariatric sleeve surgery, you mentioned therapy and was, did that help at all at that time? Therapy only works if you want it to work. You know, if you want to put the work in, you know, I was just having this conversation with a guy yesterday, man, like you can look for the answers and all that stuff, but until you're willing to accept your problems and that's something for me, I'm a stubborn dude, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm a typical, like what we picture, like all of the guys that we know, like I'm, I'm, I've put my ego aside a lot during this whole situation, but like you can go to therapy all you want, but unless you're ready to dig for those answers and dig for what's causing the problems and also accepting that things are your fault. You know, that was the biggest mm-hmm. thing for me. Like once I, I was able to accept that, you know, shit, man, I create a lot of my own problems. I get in my head a lot. I can blame the job. I can blame everybody else, but you, you have to understand that like you are responsible for your own actions. And that was something that a therapist that I went to said, like, Anytime I would say you or this and that, she would correct me and say, I, and it was a matter of like, I started having to own these problems by saying I, and that was one of the biggest things for me is that like accepting that I have these problems. Some of them are accentuated by outside circumstances, but a lot of them are my problems that I've created through my circumstances. And and that was something that was very hard to deal with. Yeah, that I, those, like, switching it from you to I, definitely, it brings that ownership straight into your lap. You can't escape it when you say I. There is no question about that. And when you say I, like, when it comes out of your, especially once you're corrected on it, it's when you want to say something that you really don't believe is your fault, but when they make you say I, and you're like, damn, that's, it's a lot harder when you're, you're owning it by saying I am the problem. So what goes along with the, the gastric, the bariatric sleeve surgery? I mean, obviously it's not just that you can't just get the surgery and everything's magically done because you, you can still overeat. Absolutely. So where my situation, I, I can honestly say, I don't know. I just follow the directions or I did so much research. I'm one of those people that like, I get down those rabbit holes. I was in like Facebook groups. I was on Reddit. I was reading everything and every problem and everything that people were having. So I have had zero complications with mine. Now mine is a little bit different because the sleeve is a band around your stomach, as opposed to having like the duodenal switch when they cut out part of your stomach mm-hmm. and reattach it. So mine was a little bit less invasive. So basically what they said was once you have the surgery, the thing you have to do is you have to walk, 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 because they pump you up full of gas during the surgery to inflate your stomach so they can do it. But the gas is what's going to cause the pain. So from the time I was in the recovery room, um, until I was released, I walked, you know, and that was where I forced myself to do it. Um, and then I started walking, man. And I, I just, that was my, my beginning, like my first initial things that I could do where I was allowed to walk basically as much as I wanted. 
So luckily in Ohio last year, we had probably the greatest fall that I ever remember. I mean, we had good weather, everything was nice. So I just started walking, but it was like recorrecting myself on how bad my eating behaviors were. And what I mean by that is, is that I still had to function with three children. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, when you pack up with three kids, anybody that's a parent knows you got to take snacks, you got to take a drink, you know, otherwise you're better. You you got to, if you're going someplace, you have to have things. So what I would notice is, is that like, when I would eat things that I wasn't supposed to eat, they made me feel the way that I should have been feeling. You know, when you're eating trash food all the time. So if I'm packing up for my kids, I could be 200 carbs worth of gum or uh, goldfish to eat. Yeah. And it's like, who the hell wants to even eat gold? You know, they don't even really taste like, it's like one of those things that it's like, I've eaten, you realize that when you go to eat them, it's just like a cognizant like behavior that when I knew that I couldn't do it, and I was like, this is going to make me sick, which early in the surgery, it would have made me sick. It's like, you just notice like your hand going to your mouth subconsciously or how much you go to the fridge just to look, or you're recognizing the behaviors because what that sleeve forces you to do is one, you're, you're for the first month or so, you're really never hungry. Right. You're basically living on protein shakes and soft food. Um, but you don't realize how much you aren't hungry, but you're still looking for that sensation. And that was huge for me. Just recognizing the bad behaviors that I had that were probably the biggest reason, just subconscious eating out of pure emotion instead of hunger. The other thing was, is that, dude, I would go, I couldn't even tell you how long without drinking water. Yeah. Didn't touch water. I never, ever drank water. And I, I, I laugh about it now because it was like, I was 99.9% diet mode. Like I, if there was, I would drink insane amounts of diet soda, particularly diet Mountain Dew. And it was just a matter of, I didn't realize how much I drank until like I completely cut it out. And it was like, I probably would go a month without taking a sip of regular water. No question. So once you had to hydrate and I never realized also how much dehydration, dehydration masks itself as hunger. Yeah. You know, and it's like, cause now I get to the point where if I'm hungry, I think how much water have I had today? You know, have I had like, and I drink a lot more water than like, like they, I wouldn't say tell you to, but what you think you might be able to in this situation. But I also, my exercise levels are significantly increased. So I will drink, you know, and, and a lot of times I have a 32 ounce water bottle that I'll drink two of those before I eat anything for the day. Cause I always do my cardio in the morning. So I try to make sure that I'm hydrated after that, before I get any food in me for the day. But it's just recognizing subconscious, terrible behaviors that were killing you. Like the littlest things, like I could have been probably losing weight all along if there was like these five little things that I would have totally knocked out. Shit, I, from just being hydrated alone and drinking water, I bet you I could have lost 50 pounds. Right. You know, not even changing anything. If I would have stopped drinking pop, and I'm not saying that diet pop is wrong, but I'm saying if I would have drank as much water as I did diet pop and as much diet pop as I did water, probably would have started losing some weight a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. So... What are the things you start recognizing as you're starting to heal from the surgery? Because I know you mentioned a few and you, 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 you again, talk about hypervigilance. You, you recognize, you learn that term and you, and you kind of, how it applies to you. Um, you also recognize some of your habits, the mindless eating, the going to the fridge between calls late at night. And uh, that's, and those are, 
big things for me. Like, you know, the hypervigilance is actually a new term for me, like from your podcast and the Create Your Own Life podcast. Like, that was something when I would listen to some of these stories that, like, I didn't relate or didn't realize how common some of these problems are. It's like everybody's fighting a different battle and we're, we're all on the same journey, whether it be alcohol or this and that. Everybody's fighting these things, but we're all taking a different advice to it. So listening to some of these people having the exact same story that I have, but with just a different demon allowed me to recognize, because I would, I would still go to the fridge in the middle of the night and I don't always win that battle. You know, like sometimes even now it's like, you don't even realize what you're doing. Like, but there were times where I would go to the cabinet, I would take out a bag of chips and it's like, you're, you're 10 handfuls of chips deep before you even realize what you're doing. And it's like, it's three in the morning. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what am I doing? Just go back to bed. Yeah. So one thing for me now is I take a different route to the trunk. You know, there's a way that you can go past the kitchen or there's a way that you don't go past the mm-hmm. kitchen. Um, and something else I started doing is that I, I, ha- I keep a protein shake made pretty much on deck at all times in the fridge. And it's like, so if I do need something in the middle of the night for, because I've been up for so long, I try to make sure that I, that I have a protein shake ready or I have something there of substance. Um, for me to have a positive alternative. Cause sometimes you are just hungry. Like when you, when you lift weights and run and, and go on runs all day, you might be hungry at two o'clock in the morning because you haven't slept and it's okay to fuel your body, but sometimes you need to just, but you need to fuel it with the right thing. So like exactly. yesterday I took, I took, I took a turkey breast, like lunch meat turkey breast. And it was like, when I was hungry yesterday, cause we were busy and I had run in the morning, it was like, I grabbed some turkey breast and it was like, it wasn't a shake. It was something I could chew on, but it's like, it's a, it's a low fat, low calorie type thing that you're basically just eating pure protein. So it was just not always just recognizing the bad behaviors and eliminating them from your life. It's recognizing the good behaviors that are going to benefit from you in the journey that you're trying to create. Cause my biggest thing was I didn't want to lose all this weight and look like a melted candle. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I, I wanted to, I'm still lifting weights. I'm still doing all this stuff, but I didn't want to just be like this saggy dude that even though I lost 200 pounds, I'm still scared to take my shirt off. Right. You know, like that was what I didn't want, man. So it was like, I had to figure out a way, but what's hard is, is that they, they give you the same cookie cutter approach to what you're supposed to do post-surgery for pretty much everyone that does it, you know? So the 60 year old man that can't do the things that I do is getting the same diet recommendations as what I'm getting. And it's like, that's not always going to be. So I had to do like, I had to start to figure some things out. Like what protein works for me? What vegetables work for me? What foods work? Cause like with this surgery, it'll tell you real quick if it don't work, man. Right. Like, there ain't no doubt about that. Like you'll feel like complete shit. Um, and there's a couple things that I've eaten that it's like, they aren't even necessarily bad, but it's like, oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to eat that again. You know, like that. And some of the things that they tell you, like they pretty much told me I would probably like my red meat, I probably wouldn't eat red meat ever again. And it's like, my diet is probably 80% lean ground meat. But they also tell you that you're going to be on 16 to 20 pills of vitamins every day Mm -hmm. um, because you're going to be deficient from your lack of diet. And it's like, I went back and gotten blood work twice in the past year. My blood work could not be any better. I have zero deficiencies. Everything that I have is of, of not above average, but higher end of normal. And I don't take one vitamin. The only thing that was making me sick in this entire process was taking multivitamin. 
And I attribute a lot of that to eating the lean red meat because I'm getting the iron, the B vitamins and all of that stuff and having a balanced diet. I'm just doing it in a fashion that works with what my body needs as opposed to relying on supplements and causing myself to be deficient because I'm scared to eat different foods or only the foods that they tell me aren't going to work as opposed to just figuring out what works for me in a performance-based diet. And that's what's really helping. Let's, let's talk about some of the things. You have a couple of terms that you used when you talk about your healing with the therapy and the podcasting and fitness to rehab yourself. And one of the things that you first talked about is run yourself home. What does that mean to you? That's, that's one that I, I kind of laugh about because this is all still just so foreign to me. Like I, 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 I probably never ran a mile, like even in elementary school, man, I was the fat kid that didn't run the mile. You know what I mean? I was like, whatever, man, sit me on a dodgeball. I'm good. I don't, I don't really need to run this thing. And I probably never ran ever. So I think I went 168 days of walking at least three miles after my surgery. I lived by my Apple watch. I was closing those rings every day. And if I, like it took strep throat to shut me down <laughs> to, to not close my ring one day. And it was like, so it would take me about an hour to walk three miles. Some days after, you know, I'd come back from runs. I was so excited to be losing this weight. I'd, I'd stay up at 3.30 in the morning and just go hop on the treadmill, throw the TV off. I'd walk seven, eight miles a day just for something, just to do it, you know? And one day I'll just never forget, like nothing hurt. I don't have any pain. I don't have any joint pain, even carrying all that weight around. I think it's because I always weight trade. But like one day I was in the basement of my, my station and I just kind of like started up in the treadmill speed a little bit. I was like, mm -hmm. you know, and I got up to the point where I was at like five and I, I, I was jogging and I'm like, yo, nothing hurts. Like I'm running, you know what I mean? Like I probably had been like 50, 60 pounds down by then. And I was like, this is awesome. Cause all I could think about in my head was, man, if I could just run, I wouldn't have to take an hour to walk every day and I could lift more and I'd have more time. And I started running, man. And it just became the most therapeutic thing I've ever done. You know, and, and I think a term that I said to you was, I'll never get sick of doing the things I couldn't do. Right. And running was something that like, I never would have ever pictured in all of this. Like I never would have pictured like some of the things that I've done, like my goal weight in all of this was about 30 pounds ago, you know, and I, I went right past it. And then we have this, I live in like a suburban country-ish area. And there's this awesome road that's just a backcountry road. Me and my kids used to ride our four-wheelers to. And out and back, it's five miles. And I'll just never forget, like, in my head, I was like, man, this would be, like, the coolest thing just to go outside and go for a run. That was, like, something I would laugh about. That was the most foreign thing in the world to me because, like, it never happened. And I'll just never forget, like, the one day I was, like, I was going to the gym. I, I had been running a little bit. I ran, like, a mile here and there. I think I ran, like, three miles one time. And I drove to the gym and, like, I got to the stop sign where you would either turn to go to the gym or go straight to go on this run. And I said, you know what, man, today's the day. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know how long it's going to take, but damn it. I'm, I'm running five miles today. And it's, it's a, it's a hell of a run because it, the whole way back is nothing but hills. <laughs> like it's a, you ain't going to get any speed on it, but you're going to grind. And I went home and I laced my shoes up and, and I just, I took off, man. And it was one of those things that it's like, on my way back, I, I like realized I was like, I'm doing it. Right. You know, like I, I'm doing this. And it's like, 
I never would have believed in my head that I could ever just go on this five mile run. And that day, you know, I, I, I'll never forget, like, there's a song by Set of Dust, um, called Angel Sun. And I just never forget, like it came on, like in the middle of the run and I just lost it. And it's like, God, I hope nobody sees me. If like, I was like crying, you know, I was just like, because I was so overwhelmed with the fact that like, I set out to do this and I'm, and I'm not there yet, but I'm a hell of a lot further away from what I was that I, than I pictured I would be. And it's just like, that was where I started. And it's like, now it's, it's almost every day. So what I started doing was I, I set a goal out to do. I was off the whole month of July and I have a, a like a trader buddy at my, my gym that we were talking and I was like, I'm going to run every day in July, 31 days. I'm going to run. And he goes, well, what's your mile goal? And I'm like, shit, dude, I don't know. I don't, I mean, why'd you got to throw the wrench in it? Yeah, I just right. said I was going to run every day. Like why? But he's like, but he's one of those people. He's your, he's my dude that keeps me on track. Like he's the guy that has the permission. If I start to fall off the wagon and be like, Hey, right. what are we doing here? So he was like, well, what's your mile goal? He goes, I think 70 is good. And I go, well, that's a stupid number. I said, how about a hundred? And he was like, okay. So I ran a hundred miles in the month of July. And it was like the most exhilarating feeling in my entire life that it's just been, once I went back to work, I started, I'll, I'll go into work early and I'll run before shift. And there's a significant, rarely do I not, but there's a significant difference that if I do or I don't, because I get the heaving gene, yeah. you know, I'm all anxious by lunchtime. But if like, if I can get that hard part of the day out of the beginning, but then the other thing for me was, is that when I said, run yourself home before I leave, I, I do my damnedest before I come home to be dad or come home to be husband to get my at least three miles in, whether that be a stop at a park or if I usually run at the station because I'm there up early and I have, but it's like, I want to come home and I didn't always come home. I would physically be here, but mentally I didn't. There was days where I never came home for that whole 48 hours and then it was time to go right back to work. So when I said run myself home, it was a matter of, I need to get this stuff out so I can go home and be dad to my three kids and husband to my wife. And I can be Adam for Adam. If I have a day off by myself, I can do the things that I need to do because I'm not sitting in that hypervigilant state being miserable. And a prime example of this was, um, my wife and I went on an anniversary trip two weeks ago and we just got crushed the night before. Absolutely crushed. And my wife is, I've said it a million times, she's the best thing that ever happened to me. And she's very understanding of this journey and she doesn't always understand it. But her idea is, Whatever you think you need to do to, to be the person that you are right now, I'm it. I will do whatever you need to do. So we were going to Pennsylvania and we got killed and I woke up the next day and I texted her. I said, Hey, I'm going to be, I'm a regimented traveler. It's like, we're going to leave by this time. We're going to get here by this time. And normally what I would have done was I would have hurried up home. I would have rushed her in the car. We would have went to Pennsylvania and done our hike. I would have rushed her through and so I could go back and take a nap. And then my day would have been, I would have been an asshole. And I would have spent the rest of the weekend of our anniversary trip recovering. Right. And this is a benchmark for me because what I did was I texted her. I said, Hey, I said, take your time, get on the road. When we get on the road, I'm going to run real quick. I have a couple errands to run and then I'll be home. So I ran, got in the sauna real quick, got a good sweat in, 
kind of bull- took a shower bullshit with the guys before I left and I ran my errands and it was like, okay, cool. Like I'm ready to go home and do this trip. But it was awesome for me to see that like any other time I could have ruined a trip like that. Right. You know, I could have ruined that trip and she could have, I could have ruined our anniversary and I could have planned the weekend spending ketchup her telling me it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. But I did. Right. I recognized shitty self-destructive behavior and I corrected it. And that was something for me, man, that it was like, that was a benchmark in this journey that it was like, you know what? Maybe this all, I mean, I, I know that it's all worth it, but besides hitting the 200 pounds lost mark on my one year anniversary, that exact moment was where I knew that things in my life, I'm not again, where I want to be, but I'm a hell of a lot further from where I was, you know, or where I was and, and I'm making progress. And that was all I can, I mean, truly all I can ask. So I think with the one question about run yourself home, you answered everything that I was going to ask you, you, you covered the, uh, you know, you taking care of your demons before you head home, uh, kind of healing yourself, you, you, you doing the things you never believed were possible. Um, you also talked about every day, still a fight that the highs are high, the lows are lows. And sometimes you have to keep fighting, which kind of you, you, you personified in that weekend before you went to Pennsylvania, you said, I have to do this for me. And that's, you had to fight for that. Uh, fight for that for yourself is what I'm saying. And that you're not where you want to be, but you're far from where you were. I think the one thing that I wanted to touch on that you didn't, that you didn't about that was be where your feet are. And that's, and that's something that I've taken from these, these first responder podcasts, um, that like, I don't live in, I, I, well, I can't say that I don't because I am, I'm learning to, I don't live in the moment. It's always the next thing. It's always planning for the next event. It's always planning for three days down the road. It's always planning what's next, what's worst case scenario, as opposed to just being right there. You know, I, I, I had three kids, man, that like, I couldn't be any more blessed with. And a lot of that over the past couple of years, like it was spent so much time worrying about what's next for them, as opposed to being like, what's here now. My son is a very good wrestler. Um, he's a very good football player. He's a very good boy is what he is. You know, my daughters are the same. Um, they do competitive cheerleading and it's like, now that I am finding joy within myself, I don't rely on the success of my children to provide me joy. And I, the amount of burden that's taken off of my family is indescribable to know that when my son, like I go out there and I'm at his games and I'm at his tournaments and I'm telling him, Hey man, go out there and give your effort, kick some ass, but have some fun. And he knows that I mean that because I'm there, I'm watching it. I'm enjoying it. And he's not looking over at my reaction to see whether or not dad's pissed off right. or dad's anxious that I'm there in the moment, being where my feet are and being at that game, being at that competition, being at that, you know, we went whitewater rafting and kayaking this year. And it was something that like, we're here, man, let's enjoy every second of this, you know? And it's like, he and my daughter, both my daughters have gotten, well, the little one's three. So she just, she's the, just a lot for the ride right now. But the other two, 
have to feel some sort of significant change in their father by just being more genuine in the love that I'm giving them because I'm able to love myself. So I'm able to love them more and I'm able to be present. I'm here where we're, we're playing outside. We're doing this. We're going fishing. We're doing all this stuff because dad's not, dad's not letting, I'm just as tired as I always was from work. You know, I'm just as busy as I always was from work, but one, my body isn't carrying an extra human. And two, I'm dealing with my demons before I come home or I'm prioritizing myself to get my exercise in. Now, sometimes that's four o'clock in the morning because we got a busy day. But if I'm going to be in that moment, I have to use that decompression to be present for my family. If that means being a little bit of extra tired because I got up and worked out, which usually I'm not, I usually feel way better. Or if I'm eating the right foods and I'm skipping this to, to make sure that I'm there with my kids, like that is what this is all about and worth it to me because it allows me to have the moments in life that I missed out on for five years. And that means a shitload to me. So well, it's like, let me go ahead. No, go ahead, man. But then, you know, and I, I don't, I, I, they talk about, we breathe life into everybody else at work at the cost of our own life. And it's like, no, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to do my job and I'm going to do it damn good, but I'm not going to allow that job to take priority over the, the, what beautiful things I have at home. And I'll never do that again. So that's kind of what, one of the things I was going to ask, you know, you're, you're closing in or you're at 200 pounds lost, correct? Yes. Yeah. So that's a huge, that's a huge milestone, but, but that physical part aside, where are you today? What, what are you, how are you feeling? Where's your brain at? Where's your mind at? Where are your emotions at? And, and where do you go forward from here? I'm learning every day. And that's, what's crazy is that like, I'm, I'm learning more about myself every single day. I'm going through some, I'm still in therapy. I'm going through some, uh, alternative therapies that the place that I go to provides. And I'm really just trying to to learn. And, and I made the comment one time to my wife that I was like, it, it was easier to hate yourself than to not know who mm. you are. Yeah. You know? And it's like, for me, I'm 36. It's like, I'm old enough to not be young, but I'm young enough to not be old. And it's like, I'm just trying to figure things out because again, there's things in life that I've never, ever been able to do. And I'm learning that I love these things and I'm learning things about the job that it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like I, I, do I still love it? You know, do I still love all the things that I used to love? And it's really just creating a new path for yourself. I, I joke around and say, I'm playing the back nine, yeah. you know, cause I mean, I'm probably close to halfway, but it's like, I'm going to make, I want to make the back nine of this the best that I ever possibly could as a, as a human, as a father, as a husband, whatever that may be, but you know, like. I still hit lumps in the road and there's been a couple that it's like, I've hit that, that lump and it's like, cause for so long, I felt so good over the past year that when I take a shot, it's like, it's harder on me than it was when you're so used to being depressed and down all the time. Sometimes the little things really set you off and you're just like, I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm not going back to that. I'm not going back to that. And it's like, but you just remember that. Sometimes life is going to punch you in the face and, and you might need that punch in the face to humble you a little bit upon this journey to make sure that you know that the journey is still worth the fight that you're fighting for. 
One of the things you said in the notes is uh, you fight every day to grow as a man, as a husband, and as a father, and that you never let your family be exposed to what you called the mental carcinogens that you once gave off. And what I mean by that is, is that I, I, I said at the beginning of the podcast that I was cancer. I was the carcinogen. I was the soot in the air, you know, that was bringing people down. And I recognize that. And I, I'm content with saying it. It's like, I, I, I wasn't here mentally. So I wasn't being able to build up a young man, build up a young woman, empower my wife to do the things that she wants to do because she has to take care of everybody else because her husband never comes home. And that's something that I have vowed that I will never do again. You know, whether it means I need to do a little bit of extra chores or whatever it might be, if I need to just speak better, you know, to be more positive. That's something that I've seen my life and my kids thrive from is that dad's positive speak, you know, like empowering my wife, tell my wife, she looks beautiful. You know what I mean? Tell my wife that she looks great. Tell my son, he did a great job. Tell my, tell my daughter, you know, when she brings me her coloring pages, these are beautiful. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that's the shit that they need to hear. They don't need to just be like, all right, yeah, that was good. And then go back on my phone or whatever I was melding myself with. You know, they need that empowerment from the male in their life to, to build them into the people that they're going to be. And for a long time, they didn't get that from me. And that's something that I see, and it's very hard for me. So now I, I almost want to be overbearing with it and over encouraging and making sure that they know that, Hey man, I'm, I'm here for you. Let's right. do it together. Yeah. You know, it's like my, again, my son's a great athlete. Now I'll talk shit now. It's like, Hey man, I'll send him a picture, you know, in the morning. Hey dad got his run in, man. What's up? You know, like just, and we do, cause we will compete like that or, you know, and just try to try to make everybody else around me better. If there's any way that I can do that or help anyone that's going through some of the things that I went through. That's what I want to do. And it's like, I, I was a carcinogen for a long time, but now I just want to be that breath of fresh air. When I walk in the stations or I walk in somewhere, they're like, hell yeah, Adam's here. Let's do it today. You know what I mean? If anything, we're going to laugh, you know, cause I mean, all right. when I'm on my game, I'm a yeah. funny person to be around, but it's like a matter of, I can also be just as cancerous. So I just need to make the decision to be that good person. Right. As opposed to that carcinogen. That's perfect. I like it. That's probably a good spot right there. Um, you want to talk about, talk about these last two questions I have for you. Absolutely. All right. So you know what the show is called and most people that are listening know exactly why I call it the things we all carry. Um, one of the things I like to do at the end is ask about an everyday carry. What's something that you take with you every day that if you don't, you're going to feel naked. It, this, this is one that was probably the hardest question after listening to all your podcasts, because I'm like, man, I don't carry any cool shit. Like some of these people do. Like, I don't have any knives or anything. Cause I'll just throw them in the washing machine, still attached to my pants <laughs> and stuff like that. Like I got to grow up, you know, like it was like, so, but I carry my Apple watch, my Apple watch and my bottle, my, my water bottle, because I got to stay hydrated because otherwise I'll, I'll fall off the rails and I carry my Apple because if it didn't happen on the Apple watch, it didn't happen. Right. You know, so it's like, that's what keeps me accountable. Those rings are what keep me personally accountable to myself on this journey to make sure that I'm doing the shit that I need to do is looking at those rings. Cause that Apple watch will get you sometimes and be like, Hey man, I noticed you ain't done anything today. What's up? You know, like, so it's a, it's a way of accountability for me. Perfect. All right. So what about a book? What are you reading? What have you read? What do you want to share with people? Uh, I wish I read more. 
You know, I, I, I can't, I, I couldn't even tell you the last book that I read, to be honest with you, but like, I, I'm, I've been way big into the, to the podcast, mm-hmm. um, kind of just cause I'll, I'll listen to them when I run because the music, I, I focus on what the next good song is, as opposed to when I do longer runs, I'll throw on yours, I'll throw on create your own light, those type of podcasts, because I really think that those are where I'm getting my, uh, motivation and realizing that my, you know, my story is unique, but it's not any different than anybody else's. So I, you know, I, if I can explain to people, maybe any first time listener or something, the way that this podcast has helped me just listen to the things that these people are saying and listen to the, the genuine nature of some of these people, um, of people that you've interviewed, the Travis has interviewed and, and, and just like how much that you can take bits and pieces of their journey and put it into your own and make it the thing that you carry on to, you know, the success of your journey. Well, I appreciate that. I, I, uh, I always say that I don't, not sure I deserve much of that credit. I think I just give a platform for people to talk and, and, uh, it's the, the fact that you guys come on here and share that, that makes the difference. So I appreciate that. You know, I mean, we, we don't deserve any of the things that we have. You know what I mean? It's just, it's about taking the, taking the situation that we've been given and making the best of it. I truly think that you're doing that. And that's inspired me to do that with my position too. Well, I appreciate that. My friend, I have, uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. Uh, hopefully you've got across what you wanted to get across and you know, you, you've got my number, you've got my email, you've got access to let me know how things are going and let's stay in touch. All right, man. I appreciate you. All right. Well, we are out. Thanks for listening to another episode of the things we all carry. Head over to the website, the things we all for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter until next week, take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other. <laughs>